love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. The love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. When hoary time shall pass away and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who hear refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains tall, God's love so sure shall still endure, all measureless and strong. Redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angels' song. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Could we with thee the oceans fill, and were the skies of parchments made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Well, if you have your Bible, open it up to John chapter 18. Those two songs were the perfect way to end because we're going to be talking a little bit about the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. And uh, so I appreciate that. Where would we be without the love and grace of Jesus Christ? As we read this section of the Gospel of John, you're probably going to note in yourself, as you did last week, that there's many features missing, missing from John's Gospel that we are familiar with because of the testimony of the other Gospels. Last week we looked at John 18 verses 1 through 11, the power of his God and how he does not need our sword and uh, this moment of arrest. But if one of the things I did not point out is that you notice we went straight from this wonderful priestly prayer of John chapter 17 and then straight to his arrest. What did it leave out? You probably noticed that John left out this whole scene of Jesus lamenting in the garden. That scene where he is crying out. That scene where he is sweating 
drops of blood. John does not include this in his gospel, nor does he include this, this scene where he is praying and two separate times he has to go back and shake awake his disciples and say, can't you stay awake just a little while and pray? Uh, and then there's this statement, this oh-so-famous statement that Jesus makes in the midst of his lamenting in prayer where he says, if it be your will, O Lord, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, what? Thy will be done. John's gospel does not include any of that. John says nothing about the anguish. He says nothing about the sweats of drops of blood and the disciples unable to stay awake to pray. Instead, John includes the high priestly prayer, and then he goes right into this confrontation between Judas and Jesus, the guards, and Peter, and somewhere in there an ear gets chopped off. Why does John leave out so much of the scene of the garden? Some might say that that wasn't what John wanted to emphasize. Some might say it's because John wanted to show uh, a stronger, more intense side of Jesus and not this weak side of Jesus crying and lamenting. I don't think that's it at all. Uh, what I think here is that G, uh, John had an interest in sharing this side of Peter that none of the other Gospels really show. Uh, I mean, they, they, they talk about the ear being chopped off in some of the other Gospels, but we're going to look a little more in detail at this uh, trial scene after the rest of Jesus and uh, how interesting it is because John continues to leave stuff out and I, I don't mean leave stuff out in that he made a mistake, so please don't hear me saying that, but that he did not include what the other gospel writers include. So again, that's a, a reason we praise the Lord that we have four different gospels that we can read through. And so, yes, he shows this boldness of Peter, even though it was the wrong time and in the wrong way. And uh, then we can start contrasting that, what we see in the transformation of Peter. This week, I want us to look at the first two trials of Jesus, just the ones in front of the Jewish leaders. And so we're going to read verses 12 through 27 of John chapter 18, verses 12 through 27. Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, and in case you don't know, let me pause right there, this other disciple that he's not naming is himself. We talked about that when we first started John a year or more ago. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Verse 17, then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of the man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always met, and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me that I said, what I said to them 
Indeed, they know what I said. Verse 22, And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Verse 24, Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear appeared cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, would you please speak to us through your word this evening? Let us not leave this place the same way we walked in. Let us learn from Peter. Let us learn from the testimony of John the Apostle. Let us learn in their interaction with you. And it's your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. So in this scripture, verses 12 through 23, we have Jesus' first trial with Annas. And then in verses 24 through 27, we have a second trial, which is before Caiaphas, who is the actual high priest of Israel. Now, John's gospel doesn't really tell us a lot about these trials. And in fact, there's a third trial before the Jewish hierarchy or the Jewish religious leaders that John completely leaves off. It's the trial before the Sanhedrin. After he leaves Annas, they go before, he goes before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin question him as well. That trial is given in detail in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 66 through 71. Why does John leave so much detail out of Jesus' trial? Some speculate it is because what he really wanted to show was Peter's denial and contrast it with Jesus' interaction with his accusers. I think I kind of agree with that. He wanted to show that while Jesus is answering honestly, Jesus is answering boldly, he is not hiding who he said he was. And you see that as he answers his accusers, hey, talk to the people who were following me. Talk to the people who heard me talk. They'll They'll tell you everything I taught. He's not hiding himself in this situation. And yet here Peter is, this follower, this man that had just chopped off an, an ear for the sake of Jesus. And he is denying uh, that he even knew him. You'll notice from verses 12 through 23, this is the first trial. It's the coverage uh, of, of Jesus before Annas. All of those verses, there's only five verses in the Gospel of John that talk about this dialogue between Annas and Jesus, and one of them, he's getting slapped in the face by one of the guards. There's not a lot of detail. The rest has to do with who Caiaphas, or who Annas is, and the rest has to do with John getting Peter in, and Peter denying Jesus Christ. That's why we can make this conclusion. It seems like John really wants to highlight what's going on with Peter. According to John, the arresters lead Jesus to Annas. John is sure to point out to us that Annas is not the high priest, but that his son-in-law Caiaphas is. History shows that Annas was the high priest from about 6 to 15 AD, and then he was removed from that post by the Roman government. A lot of, uh, um, a lot of historians believe he was probably removed because, uh, well, he was a little scrupulous. He, he, uh, he was hard to deal with, or... They speculate that he was uh, scandalous or rebellious against the Roman government. Nevertheless, the fact that Jesus comes to him first shows what kind of power he still wields. Even though he's not the high priest, and, and you might even consider him to be like the high priest emeritus, or however you pronounce that word. Uh, so, you know, once the high priest, kind of always the high priest, right? 
I mean, we're still, we still uh, refer to Barbara Bush as the first lady, right? Even though she's been removed from that for a long time. Brother Don, you will always be the mayor, no matter what, right? We will always refer to you as the mayor of Colmenil. That's just the way that is. Uh, so this shows what kind of power and what kind of authority Anna still wields. But the striking thing about this count, again, is that when John came out, and he asks the maid to let Peter in, right, which automatically associates Peter with John. And the lady says, you are not one of the disciples too, are you? Why does Peter lie? That's, that's why I think John is really trying to highlight this. Why, why does he deny this at all? I mean, just the fact that John comes out and, and asks to let Peter in, and John was you know, also a disciple of Christ, and he didn't deny knowing who Jesus was. At this point, Peter is in no danger. Why does he lie? We don't really have an answer other than he was just afraid, and he was fulfilling <laughs> the prophecy that Jesus spoke, right? It's ironic to know that had Peter just said, yes, I am one of his disciples, he could have joined the other disciple, John, he could have seen the whole proceedings, and he never would have had to lie. He never would have denied his Lord. But Peter, with this first lie, determines to do it his own way, and this is what gets him into trouble. What do I mean by that? Because once you lie, what do you have to do? you got to lie again. That's right. That, what's that old saying? If once you, what is that? I, got, I can't remember. Oh, oh, what a tangled web we weave when once we choose to deceive. I think that's how it goes. One lie snowballs into another, and another, and another. While Peter holds fast to his life, Jesus is answering questions truthfully, though he knows it will lead to his punishment and death. Here Jesus is. He's answering the questions. He's, he's answering them boldly. He's not denying who he was. He's saying, go talk to my followers. Oh, by the way, some of my followers are right here, and yet... Here Peter is denying even knowing this man. In the next trial, Jesus is sent to Caiaphas, who is the high priest. But again, John gives us absolutely no details of this trial. The other Gospels give us details. That's, that's the beauty, again, of having four uh, testimonies of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Only that Peter, once again, that's, this is what John wants us to know. Once again, Peter denies knowing Jesus Christ. By now, Peter is so rattled and frustrated. According to other accounts, this is when he denies the Lord with oaths and curses, finally resorting to blasphemy in order to assert his lie that he was not a disciple of the Lord. Now, John's gospel doesn't tell us that, but the other gospel accounts tell us that he cursed, that he blasphemed, that he made an oath. This is extreme. Listen, this isn't just, no, I don't know who he is. But you start thinking about blasphemy. You start thinking about cursing. You start thinking about making, I swear to whatever you want to swear on. This is how extreme of a lie that Peter is making. Peter makes this final assertion, no, I don't know him. And the minute he does, through the morning air, there came the sound of a rooster crowing, is what John tells us. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to him. We read it just a few chapters back. 
And there, according to some of the other gospel testimonies, we know that Jesus was being escorted perhaps across the courtyard, or they were just across the courtyard from each other, and they're able to make eye contact. I wonder what Peter saw in the eyes of Jesus in that moment. I wonder if it was a, I told you so. <laughs> uh-huh. I wonder if it was, I can't believe. No, Jesus could believe it. You know what I think he saw? Mercy. I think he saw grace. I think he saw love. Because remember, it was Jesus who also said, Oh, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like flour, but I have prayed for you that you'll make it through on the other side. That's my paraphrase, by the way. And so I think when Peter saw those eyes filled with mercy and tender love, he broke down and he wept. And he quickly leaves the area. He runs out weeping bitterly, the other gospel accounts tell us. In this segment, we get no details at all about the trial, only this final moment of Peter's betrayal. Is, is John just picking on Peter? Is he, just, is he just wanting to make sure we know just how bad Peter was? I, I don't think he does. I, I, I don't think P, Peter is, is the guy that John's trying to kick while he's down. And I don't think he's trying to remind Peter of what a failure he was. And I certainly don't think John's trying to make him look bad. John even includes a detail in this section of Scripture that none of the other gospel writers tell us. Look at uh, verse 26. He says, One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Not only was Peter swearing he didn't know who he was, but this person that was accusing him was actually related to Malchus. Dude, you just cut off my cousin's ear. I really think you were with him in the garden. Again, I don't, I don't think it's John's point to make Peter look bad. I don't think he's trying to pick on Peter or make him feel bad. Because John also includes a story that none of the other gospel writers give us. Flip over to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. This is after Jesus' death. This is after Jesus' resurrection. This is, in fact, we're not sure how long, but sometime after Jesus' resurrection. And they're on the sea on a fishing trip. And Jesus shows up. John chapter 21, read verses 15 through 17 with me. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, I know you've read this scripture, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, said to him tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Now, I'll not get into detail about the wordplay that goes on there in the Greek language tonight. That, I'll save that when we get to that chapter. But nevertheless, this is a beautiful scene that John paints for us of Jesus restoring Peter. Of Jesus restoring Peter in, in relationship. The very Savior that he had betrayed, the very one that he had denied knowing was now sitting there saying, Peter, do you love me? And he wouldn't ask that if he didn't love Peter as well. I think John includes the scripture in John 18 and contrasts Jesus and Peter so much 
to the near exclusion of the Jewish trials because he knows that he is going to include this moment on the seashore between Jesus and Peter. He knows that he's going to write that in. He knows the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to write chapter 21 just as he writes chapter 18. Peter has denied the living God, cursing one girl, running away like a coward, denying knowing who Jesus was to the very relative of Malchus. Any other person would have let Peter have it, but not Jesus. He offers forgiveness. He even lets Peter know before he ever does it, I'll be forgiving you and I'll be restoring you. And even the promise that Peter, you are still of use. Let me ask you, have you ever let Jesus down? You don't have to answer out loud, but I appreciate it. (laughs) Have you ever let Jesus down? Have you ever been filled with zeal for God? Filled with zeal for God only to stumble and fall in your own weakness, your own sinfulness, your own lust for your own fleshly desires. Let me tell you right now that God does not want to hold that over your head. Nor does he want to use that to disqualify you from his service. There are only two people that want to remind you of your moral failure. That want to remind you of your sin. The devil and yourself. God is ready and willing to let it go if you just confess and repent from that. He wants us to move on in our relationship with Him. God only wants to bring us conviction to the point of confession and repentance. And then He says, I put it as far as the east is from the west. I really believe the point of John here in John chapter 18 is to show us just how depraved Peter had become at this point. The timing of his authorship would have been well after Peter had preached this wonderful sermon in Acts chapter 2 where over 3,000 people come to faith. It would have been well after Peter had done these miraculous healings. It would have been well after Peter had been established as a major apostle and founding father of the church. So you see my point. Perhaps some person would read John's new gospel writing. And he'd say, whoa, Peter did this? And look at how Jesus used him? If he can use Peter, then is it possible that he could use me? Is it possible that he could forgive me for how I failed him time after time and restore me and use me? Listen, wherever you are spiritually this evening, I just want to make sure you know this truth. You are not too far gone for God to restore you and use you for wonderful, miraculous things for His glory. Here's another reason I think John shows this side of the story in John chapter 18. I wonder if this was the scene that that drove Peter to do what he did and live the way he lived. We think often that his mistakes... In other words, when we think of Peter, we think of how he stuck his foot in the mouth. I mean, honestly, most of the time, when we think of the Apostle Peter, we think of, oh, he's the guy that said, I will never deny you, Jesus, I'll die with you. We, We think of that. But I wonder if it's this moment in his life that drove Peter to live the way that he lived. Peter did some magnificent things for the glory of God, and he was ready and willing to lay down his life for the sake of of God for the sake of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he was living in appreciation for the grace 
that had been put upon him. Let me say that again. Why was he willing to lay down his life for the name of Jesus Christ? Because he was living in appreciation of the grace that God had applied to him. This moment was a miserable moment in his life, but God restored him. Why? Because he is a grace-filled God. And when we really understand that all that God has given to us by the motivation of his grace, we cannot help but to live in obligation to the grace that has been afforded to us. You see, if Peter had not been restored, he would have never been willing to lay down his life for Jesus Christ. To me, that's one of the, the basic fundamental arguments for the truthfulness of who Jesus Christ is. Because nobody is willing to die for a lie. I mean, you might have a handful, like those idiots who drank the Kool-Aid down in the Caribbean or wherever that was. Right? What was that guy's name? Jimmy? Jim Jones, yeah. There was, some, there was a handful of people that died, right? <laughs> for a lie. But to have so many people, and, and Peter especially, to do so much for the sake of Jesus Christ, to me is a, a proof of the grace he had received. You know, it kind of reminds me of that old western, The Hanging Tree. Have you all ever seen that? Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper plays a doctor in that movie, The Hanging Tree. And in that movie, there's a young man who gets shot, and he's dying. And Gary Cooper, the doctor, operates on this young man and saves his life. The young man says, thank you so much. Uh, what, what can I do in, re in, in return for you saving my life? And Gary Cooper says, well, I've always needed an assistant. I'll tell you what, why don't you be my assistant? And I'll teach you everything to do. I'll teach you what I do, and, and you can be my assistant. And the young man says, okay, okay, how long do I have to be your assistant? And Gary Cooper says, for the rest of your life, because that's how long you would have been dead if I hadn't saved your life. <laughs> Listen, what are we willing to do in return for what Jesus has done? He has saved us for the rest of our lives, for the rest of eternity. And what we see in Peter as a result of Jesus' gracious response to his sin is a lifelong loving obligation to the grace of God. And you know what? We have that same debt. I have that same debt. My prayer is that we will see this same great debt we owe to God and feel compelled to serve Him with our whole lives. Not out of obligation to guilt, but obligation to grace. A love-motivated obligation to God's grace on our lives. Oh, He has done such a marvelous work in us. Would we not repay Him by giving Him our whole lives in return? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you, Lord, for its impact on our life. Lord, I thank you for grace, and I thank you for love. Lord, may we live, in, may we give and live our whole lives in response to your grace and to your love. Lord, I might be quick to say, well, I've never denied you like Peter did, but I deny you in a lot of different ways, perhaps not even realizing it. And when I think about that, Lord, it kind of gets me down, kind of makes me feel bad. But then I think, just like Peter, you are looking at me with tender love and mercy. You are extending to me grace. And if I will confess and repent and come running back to you and say, Lord, you know all things, you know, you know I love you. 
Lord, you have use for us. You have use for us. No one is too far gone that, God, you cannot use. Lord, may we go out of this place tonight convinced of this truth and not only holding it within our own hearts, but, Lord, ready and willing.